Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Good morning and welcome to this session of today's UBI conference, which is called Will Technological Change Make UBI Inevitable? Which is a definitely a strong, a strong question to uh, get us going. Um, I'm Gavin Kelly. I'm chair of Think Tank the Resolution Foundation and I chair the Living Wage Commission that sets the real living wage. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, uh, thank you for joining us. Um, we're discussing, as you all know, UBI, which has really established itself as a kind of vibrant debate, both in the UK and across many other countries too. And I think it's rare for a policy idea to gain such traction in civil society uh, at the same time as it's quite sort of distant still, at least in this country, in terms of the likelihood of it being introduced nationally kind of in the, in the near future. So it's an interesting if you like, kind of conjuncture between a lot of energy and a lot of debate, um, but quite a lot of distance still from, um, I think, the mainstream policymakers, although that is shifting it in some countries, as we may hear. Um, I think it's incredibly timely also to be talking about this issue today and talking about social protection more widely, because we meet on a day where we are witnessing the largest cut in social security in the history of this country. Uh, and if that doesn't add a degree of intensity and urgency to these sorts of discussions, then I don't know what will. Um, so I think that's a useful bit of context for the whole day, really. Um, I'm hoping, sometimes I've been in these discussions and you get an awful lot of heat and not much light. I'm hoping today we get it the other way around, and I'm confident we will do. Um, and we're going to talk about technological change and its link to UBI. And you've just heard a session where you've had the great economist Diane Coyle talking to Martin Ford about kind of just the widespread implications of technological change and the social dilemmas and inequalities that that can give rise to. So I hope that we will touch on obviously the technological question, but also I think it's important that we see UBI in the wider context of many forms of disruption to our labour market and our economy, whether that's Brexit, whether it's net zero, there's a lot of change coming in the 2020s um, that we will have to help people navigate and get through, um, hopefully in a relatively cohesive way as a society. And I think that's the sort of framing, which I think is helpful for our discussion. To help us do that, we've got two wonderful speakers uh, who have both thought hard about questions of UBI and just social security more generally. We're gonna hear first from Anna Dent. Uh, Anna is an independent public policy consultant and researcher, and she is based in Bristol. Um, in the hood, and she focuses on work in work poverty and has written widely on a UBI, and you'll hear from Anna herself, but I think she's probably sort of sympathetic but pragmatic, I think, supporter of the debates on UBI, but you, Anna will say it in her own way. And then we're going to hear from Kate Bell. Kate is the head of Rights, International Social and Economics uh, Department at the TUC, basically is the kind of big policy brain at the TUC. She won't say that, but I can. Um, and she has worked in all sorts of places, from the Labour Party to the Child Poverty Action Group, basically most of the world of social policy for as long as I can remember. And she's a member of the Low Pay Commission, which is also relevant. Um, and you will hear from Kate, but I think it, she's a kind of informed, slightly sympathetic, sceptical take on UBI. But, uh, so, that, so an interesting combination. Um, it's quite a short session, so we'll try and keep it moving quickly. You can ask questions, as I'm sure you know, there is a chat function. Um, we'll try and do justice to them, and we'll get through as much as we can in the next 25 minutes or so. But 
straight over to Anna. Thank you. Thank you, Gavin. Um, yes, it's great to be involved in a local event, uh, local as much as it is on the internet, but um, great to be involved in, in the Bristol Festival of Ideas. So thank you very much for having me. Uh, so yeah, as Kevin says, um, I I would I suppose class, classify my interest in UBI as uh, enthusiastic but pragmatic, and I'll talk through some of that, and I'll talk through some research that I've done um, into the topic of of how UBI ends up on the policy agenda, um, and broadly, we'll sort of uh, spend my five minutes talking about some reasons that. UBI might become inevitable, some reasons it might not, and then tell you where I am at the end. Um, I think uh, worth saying that the word inevitable has has maybe lost some of its meaning in the last 18 months. So let's always keep that in mind. Things may or may not be inevitable that we might have thought they were in the past. Um, and I think there's two, two parts to the question that we need to think about. One is, will technological change change work and change how we work so much that something's big something really significant is going to need to happen to maintain our economic security and also will UBI be the most popular most effective most pragmatic answer to, to that question so there's there's two two bits to the question really that I'll whiz through some some thoughts on so first of all I mean that kind of goes without saying but that the, the last year and a half and however long it is now has shown us that that in the right circumstances, it's possible for government to find billions of pounds to, to put into our into most of our pockets, many of our pockets, and really attach minimal conditions to that. So, if you'd asked this question sort of two years ago, then you might have got some different answers. I think, uh, and I think that, that the pandemic has really helped to shift public opinion on our current system of, of uh, universal credit and other benefits that that. People that had maybe never come into contact with this with it before, uh, never needed to claim any kind of unemployment benefits that suddenly had to. Um, and many more people have understood how UC just is so, so difficult to live on, even before today. There were some temporary concessions uh, around conditionality, around uh, requirements to, for job seeking, uh, although that didn't last very long. But we've seen really the pandemic has shown us that, that, that big changes are possible. Uh, within within our, our social security system. Uh, and as Gavin said, um, UBI is really even more on the policy agenda than it was already. I think you can get a false sense of that if you work in this in this sort of field that everyone everyone was talking about it pre-2020. Um, but it really it really has got much, much more public interest. And as I'll say in a minute, that's one of the things that, that in, in other places in the world has been really important to, to bring UBI really uh, properly onto the policy agenda has been public interest uh, and that that interest now even now more than ever it is not just at the margins it's not just a, a, a kind of utopian ideal over to the side somewhere you know it's being talked about um in in really um sensible terms by a lot more people i think the other thing that that the pandemic has shown us which adds to the feeling that maybe UBI might might happen, uh, it is that we can see uh, a speeding up, I think, of some some shifts in, in technology and work. Um, that there is evidence that some of the changes that may have taken five or 10 years to come through have happened much more quickly, just because of things like social distancing requirements. And we can see also, um, maybe more clearly than we have done in the past, that 
uh, a lot of the changes that, that are happening because of technological change, a lot of the changes to work are not positive. We can see poor quality, low paid jobs. We can see insecure jobs. We can see um, that, that technological change is not bringing utopia for lots of workers. Um, and we can also see that there's some work earlier this year by the Institute for the Future of Work that some of the practices that we might have thought of as being quite um, uh, affecting quite a narrow section of the labour market are starting to spill out into wide, wider, um, uh, more widely across the labour market. So more um, perhaps white collar roles, perhaps better paid jobs are starting to be um, subject to some of those kind of gig economy practices that that might have been it might have been possible to, to sort of think that they were contained in a small small bit of the labour market. So that all these things add to the feeling that perhaps we need to be thinking sensibly, we need to be thinking kind of more realistically, I suppose, about something like EBI. Um, so I did a piece of research back in 2017, um, which was 2016, 17 was, was maybe the last time that there was a really big surge, I suppose, in, in interest in EBI because there was some quite high profile experiments starting up around the world. Um, and I was really interested in, in how that had happened, how UBI had gone from something quite marginal um, uh, to become something that governments were actually sent, uh, really em embracing, but embracing only to the level of experimentation. And I think that's an important point to remember. So I looked at um, UBI trials in Ontario, Finland, Netherlands and Scotland. Scotland obviously hasn't started trials yet, but that was the start of them, them thinking about it. And um, I found some really interesting uh some interesting results in that the, the the factors which enabled ubi to come into the policy agenda were really similar in those four different places and i'll just just pick out four of the the big ones which feel relevant to us now so so one of those is that there was widespread understanding of that that traditional policy solutions were just not keeping up so big challenges like poverty like unemployment like the failure of, of social security to to keep up with those problems the awareness of that was really growing and there was at the same time a growing awareness of UBI uh, more and more people were embracing UBI as a possible solution there were a lot of advocates campaigners experts were raising awareness legitimizing the idea of UBI so those uh, and I think we can see all of those happening now I think those are all in the mix those, these things are all swimming around so there are some reasons why yes UBI might be something that, that comes up the policy agenda, but I'm going to whiz through some some reasons why not. Uh, I'm sure it's been said by many please. people. Um, we've been through major periods of technological technological change before. We haven't introduced UBI. UBI has been on the policy agenda in varying shapes or forms for decades. It, ha it hasn't happened. Um, uh, we can see today with the cut to, cut to universal credit. Um, this government is is really firmly of the view that work is the root out of poverty, even though we know that's not true for many people. And for many of us, technological change isn't going to wipe out our jobs completely. It might change the skills we need. It might change the tasks we do. But the idea that robots will take all our jobs is just not realistic. And also we've seen this, uh, we've seen a rise in poor quality work in low paid work in, in work poverty for many years. It hasn't triggered a big policy shift. Yes, we've had bits and pieces around rises in minimum wage but a lot of the things that are happening through technological change are things that have been happening before now and they haven't triggered this, this huge shift 
um, I think well, also one really important thing is is we need to not fall into the trap of, of technological determinism here. So the idea that all of this is inevitable, that we can't do anything about it. I think we need to, to stop and think, what can we, how can we influence policy? How can we uh, work with employers to create better quality jobs, et cetera, et cetera, rather than just uh, giving in to the idea that, that all of this is inevitable. So I'm, Kevin, you're waving at me, I can see. Um, so I think, uh, I think what UBI gives us is some pointers towards how our system of social security could be better. I think rather than waiting for some huge seismic shift that takes us from where we are now straight into a UBI, I think we can look at UBI as, as a pointer in, in ways to make our current system better. So, for example, the, the idea of removing sanctions, removing conditions from our benefit system, which we know there's evidence that they're not effective. Uh, we could withdraw the taper or massively reduce the taper when someone gets into work to make it worthwhile then to actually earn more. There's lots of things we could learn from you guys that think we could improve what we have rather than thinking we need to make this enormous leap from where we are into UBI. So I don't think it's inevitable, but I think there's a lot to learn uh, from UBI that can help us as we move incrementally forwards. Ah, there we go. Excellent. Thank you, Anna. Um, sympathetic and pragmatic as built. Um, and your points about how the last 18 months have certainly changed the context for what feels possible, what feels impossible, is obviously a point well made and something we should hold on to. Uh, without further ado, Kate, let's hear from you. Thank you. Okay, well, I feel a bit like Anna and I had met up and planned this beforehand, which we absolutely haven't, because I'm going to say some similar things in a similar structure, but maybe with some different examples. So my answer to the question is, will, te will technological change make UBI inevitable is no. And firstly, because I doubt the inevitability of the impact of technological change. And secondly, because I'm not fully convinced that UBI is the most effective way or the only way to deliver a redistribution of income or control, which I absolutely do think is necessary. So the kind of straw man debate, straw man picture in this kind of debate is that robots replace everything we currently call work. Um, the only way to redistribute income is through universal basic income, and that's possibly funded by a tax on the robot owners. And I guess I'm sort of attacking that straw man, but trying to be more interesting than just taking that down. So I think it's really important to remember, as Anna has said, that the impacts of technological change, whether it's robots or artificial intelligence, are really uncertain. Um, there's still some doubts about whether it turns up at all. Um, the OECD say it's unclear how much of the likelihood of automation will actually materialise. There's no evidence that technological change has been associated with net job losses overall. And I think when you look at our current labour market in the UK, you can certainly see that. Um, we've got a record number of vacancies at the moment. And of course, that's for all sorts of reasons. And one of them might be a failure to automate fast enough. And um, certainly when you look at some of the kind of agricultural um, vacancies, you know, there's a lot of demand for automation that hasn't yet been delivered. Um, I thought I'd take one example because it's been really interesting for me. So I started this job in 2016 and at that point, as Anna was saying, there's this huge debate about basically will robots take all the jobs? And one of the examples that was frequently given was truck driving or lorry driving, as we'd call it in the UK. So everyone was saying, oh, what's going to happen? This is this working class job that is going to disappear. 
Um, there was a study by the McKinsey Global Institute um, reporting that 1.5 million trucking jobs were going to be lost over the next decade due to self-driving trucks. But actually, what we're finding is that there is technological change going on in the sector, but it's having different impacts. So there's a study by Uber, who is not always the trade union movement's favourite source, but they found that the impact of self-driving trucks was going to be an increase in jobs, but more of them doing last mile deliveries. And obviously, we've currently got lorry driver shortages in the news. Um, that's the impact of lots of things, including the pretty terrible terms and conditions in the sector. But one of the reasons that um, drivers in general are in short supply is because there's been a big rise of jobs in the logistics industry. That's the impact of another type of technological change. It's the fact that we're doing our shopping online. It kind of replaced a form of consumer labour whereby we were, you know, actually going to the shops and picking up goods ourselves with a form of paid labour where we pay people to deliver them to our houses. So technological change has had an impact on the world of work, but it's one that's possibly increased jobs rather than decreased them. And I think just to make a slightly wider point, um, that kind of robots will take our jobs stereotype is one that kind of suggests we have a fixed idea of what work is whereas I think what work is is kind of socially politically determined as well as economically determined I'm working now I'm sitting in my home um, talking to you and somebody has decided that I should be paid for doing that and I think you know what we decide to pay for is normally a really set you know the result of a set of complex choices not just kind of technologically determined which I think is pretty much what Anna said too so isn't UBI isn't inevitable because of technological change, but I think there's a different question about whether it's desirable as a way to affect kind of the redistribution of income and the power that income brings with it that's so clearly needed. Um, I'm really conscious, as Gavin said, that today is the day that families across the country are facing the largest overnight benefit cut in history, often losing around 10% of their income. And I think we should just stop and think a bit that about the fact that universal credit has universal in its name, 40% um, of those who receive it are in work, and neither of those things has been enough to create the political pressure we need to stop that cut. Um, we're still hearing inaccurate and pretty offensive rhetoric about people getting a job in order to get out of poverty. And kind of ironically, in a really horrible way for this debate, there was a Tory MP being quoted saying, um, the way to get for people who were experiencing the universal credit cut to get out of poverty was to get an AI apprenticeship. So I think despite, you know, we actually have had a shift to more universalist rhetoric in our social security system, if not in reality, and we just haven't created the political shift. And I think one real question for me is whether a universal basic income would be able to change the kind of toxic politics that exist around social security. And I guess one of my main anxieties about the talk about universal basic income is it's seen as a shortcut to doing that rather than thinking about the kind of harder political work needed to change that consensus. I think another worry is that it's also kind of seen as a shortcut around some of the other work that might be needed to deliver economic and social justice. I think we are going to keep on working for some of the reasons I've set out. Um, and also because I think work in many ways, although of course it needs to be much better, is positive for us. But I think, you know, to achieve that, we need a huge change in the way work is managed. That's not just higher wages so that workers see more of the benefits of technological change, but more control over your time, like a shorter working week, a greater voice at work. And of course, I'd say that trade unions and collective bargaining where you have a voice at work are the best way to deliver that. 
We've also got a big job to do to address the additional costs that keep people in poverty, whether that's a lack of decent social housing or a lack of affordable childcare. Those are two critical barriers to everybody's freedom. Um, there's also the additional costs of meeting, um, of having children or the social costs that are imposed in our current society if you have a disability those are costs we absolutely need to meet and i'm not convinced that a basic income is a way of meeting those so however once we've done that um you know once we've achieved those kind of transformational changes in the world of work um i think it is worth talking about what additional benefit um a universal basic income can bring and like Anna, I've sort of had my thinking changed a tiny bit by the kind of experience of the furlough scheme. And although there's research by a colleague of Gavin's, Mike Brewer, showing that a universal basic income would have been less effective at redistribution than the furlough scheme was, the experience of some people on that scheme who did have a period where they took some time out of work and were able to kind of take another look at the terms and conditions they were working in really interesting talking to hospitality employers at the moment who are saying oh people don't want to come back to working nights and every weekend and they're demanding more flexible work like to write <laughs> you know so i do think there's been something really interesting about the experience of that scheme and how it has given people some time out of work with a level of security that has enabled them to demand more and i think that's certainly something we should be aiming for and I think universal basic income can be a really useful tool for thinking about that with even if I don't think it's the answer either to some kind of invented problems around robots taking over all our jobs or extremely real problems about a decent social security system and decent public services. Great thank you uh, very much Kate and uh, that was uh, insightful and nuanced as Bill too. Um, now we haven't got long left, um, so let's, I mean, what's interesting, one observation is that we're coming from similar but slightly different places. You've both sort of put to bed in a way, the kind of, how do I put it, the kind of 20, there was a 2010s debate, which was slightly, and some of it came from the West Coast of the US, which was kind of hyper techno determinism, going to be huge returns to the owners of capital from technological change. There's going to be huge technological unemployment in a kind of Keynesian 1930s sort of way. And the only way through that in terms of people being able to live and get by would be some sort of tax on capital, which is redistributed via a UBI. And that plus a few suspects, uh, to put it politely, studies showing that a half of all the jobs may go equaled a debate which was framed in this sort of way. And I feel like for me, a positive development is that the kind of new version of this debate is sort of got past that. And in a way, I want to sort of try and probe both from a kind of slightly sceptical and a slightly sort of su supportive frame some of the challenges to this new phase of the debate. So by that, I mean, so I guess, Kate, if, if, you if you're wearing your sort of, is this really the best approach towards building a better system? I mean, I think one of the striking things about the experience of the last 18 months um, even for those who are skeptical about a UBI, is the severity of the problems faced by lots of people in the labor market who don't fit into neat categories, who may be working as an employee a bit of the time, but they may be self-employed, furlough didn't work for them very well, the self-employed support scheme didn't work for them. Some people were really shafted, despite the fact there was actually quite generous support on offer in, relative to historical norms in this country. Now that doesn't make a case for a, you know, a, a massive UBI necessarily. It does highlight that traditional forms of social security are not well fitted onto 
emerging labour market trends? Question mark. Is that does that point as does that make you more sympathetic to this sort of argument, or do you not buy it? Not really. Um, I think um, those emerging labour market trends are deeply problematic. They are the result of people pushing people into full self-employment yeah. as a way of reducing employers' tax liabilities, and they've shown the costs of that. So, you know, you get all sorts of studies funded by tech companies people going, people love the flexibility of being self-employed. And it turns out when you need the security of sick pay, for example, or income support, people don't love that flexibility quite so much. And I think it actually has exposed some of the flaws in that model of employment rather than, you know, as well as the flaw, the existing flaws in our social security system. But you know, some of the severity of those problems was the people who were really facing problems were people who were not sure if they could prove they were actually self-employed. And that's yeah. because they were in a deeply kind of complex um, kind of employment relationship. Some people who couldn't prove they were self-employed because they hadn't been working and being self-employed for long enough. That was a really, really hard case. Um, yeah. But actually, I think it just shows up the flaws in that labour market model. You're saying if, that's, if that, that is a problem, but if you want an answer to that problem, you should be looking more at employment law type solutions rather than social security. Is that, I think that was... I think that's where I'd look first. There are issues in social security. So self-employed people, for example, don't have good access to sick pay. They don't have good access to, for example, family benefits um but i'm not sure it makes the case for a kind of yeah i, I think it, it falls into the technological and it's a bit like the gig economy is a bit like the robots um type um debate it's a technology makes this form of work which happens to be convenient to the people pushing it inevitable yeah okay um and are you coming in that but i also want to put something i mean one of the this kind of flows from something that Kate was saying earlier. One of the big problems for kind of UBI pragmatists, if you like, who are people who also care deeply about poverty and, and, and they understand the existing social security system well and so on, is that we are starting from where we are starting from. And that's just, you know, and when you look at where we're starting from, I mean, that even before t today's changes, you know, we have very high levels of child poverty. We have, I could do a long list, I won't, this time is short. We start from a bad place. And there are real kind of burning needs that need to be met today if we're going to advance socially as a country. And it just makes, even if you're sympathetic to a kind of long-term view of UBI, it just always makes it incredibly hard to say this is the priority for this country and this mm. year or this decade. Well, how do you, I mean, what's your take on that? Because I get stuck on that. Yeah, um, well, I'll just really quickly say on the previous question, I was one of those self-employed people that um, didn't get the support I, des I deserved, I needed, because my income dropped by over a third um, because of, of HMRC's own tax rules. Very boring. But in that, you know, I lived through that experience of, of feeling like everyone else is getting something and I'm not. So, yeah. you know, that personal experience of why is this not universal is very real. And I fully appreciate I'm in a much, much more secure, financially secure place than, than most other people that went through that. But it, it, it makes a very strong personal argument for something to be with universal when, when yeah. you have that experience. Uh, I think on the second question, yeah, I think I, I absolutely wouldn't say, you know, we need to push put everything else aside and just focus on campaigning for UBI, which is one of the reasons why I, I said rather hurriedly at the end, end of my presentation, I think there's things we can learn from it that we could implement now in, a, in an ideal world that would help to address some of those issues you know so the the, the issues of conditions and sanctions for example yeah. um 
the issues of uh, of the taper you know the, those are all things that contribute to in work poverty to child poverty to making uh, the you know the, the as Kate's point around you know poor quality and secure work those are exacerbated by some of those systems of, of our social security system which if we took a, an incremental approach which which actually incidentally some of those those countries that I spoke to for my research they'd maybe not explicitly but they had some of them gone through incremental steps towards a more universal system um, through design or accident or a mixture of both um, and those incremental steps had made improvements so whilst I, I, I agree Gavin that you know I, I don't think we should we should be saying uh, universal basic income tomorrow will solve, solve all our problems because all the other problems wouldn't go away overnight. Um, I think there's things that, that we can we learn. learn. Yeah. Okay, okay, we're almost out of time. So I'm gonna ask you a totally unfair question, which you're gonna to have to answer in about 30 seconds each, which is say we reconvene as a group in 2030, just uh, and put your kind of, not you wish it was so, but like where you think we will be on this debate, both in this country and internationally, but what, where do you think the UBI debate of 2030 will be in a nutshell, Kate? Um, I can't say, I can't answer that without saying why I hope it will be, basically. Okay, so on, you're breaking my rules, but go on. Yeah, one thing I'd hope um, when Anna talks about incrementalism is that we've re-established a universal payment for children. That's something we've lost for the UK social security system yeah. and something I think we could all agree is absolutely vital. I think we could say a decent quality universal payment for children might be a way to start towards the kind of universalism which is sort of a really vital quality of um, this debate. Anna? Um, I think in some ways it probably will look quite similar to how it looks now. Uh, sorry, hate to say that to some people who think that's a terrible thing to say. Um, I think that um, if some of the pilots that are happening scale up and are rolled out much more widely, I think the debate might then have moved on quite significantly if we can see some really really solid evidence that that is working but i think here in the uk i would personally be surprised if we've got massively further forward but if scotland and wales pilot within the next eight to nine years that could make could make quite a big difference, a big difference. Yeah, yeah yeah interesting if we have different social security kind of agendas developing across these islands yeah um, yeah we we have used our time um, and sure. I feel like we're only getting going. But um, uh, I said I hoped we get more light than heat. Um, I think we delivered on that, thanks to uh, Kate and Anna. Uh, so big virtual round of applause and all that to our two speakers. Um, thanks to our audience. I'm sorry that we didn't have more time, um, but I wanted to hear as much as I could from, from these two great uh, people who know a lot about the system that we've got and the one that we might want to have. Um, so that is all we have time for. So thanks to Festival Ideas, thanks to University of Bath. Um, in terms of your programme, I gather you have a short break now, um, and then you are going to reconvene with the programme, recommencing at 10.50. So uh, thanks to everyone for taking part. This is a debate which is going to run and run, mm -hmm. and we might even see you again in 2030. Okay, cheers. Thanks very much. Thanks, bye-bye.